0: Welcome, listeners, and thanks for joining us on the Paranormal Factor podcast. In this episode, we look into a truly scary UFO event from 1967, when UFOs disabled U.S. nuclear missiles. On the morning of March 16, 1967, Captain Robert Salas received reports of a strange, glowing, red-saucer-shaped object hovering above the nuclear missile silos assigned to Montana's Malmstrom Air Force Base. It would remain there for several minutes, with multiple military personnel viewing it. Then, as Salas watched helplessly, the ten nuclear missiles he was monitoring in his launch control center went offline, one by one. The object then vanished. The missiles, however, would remain offline for several hours before returning back to normal. Join us as we look into a well-documented and frightening story of the time when UFOs shut down the nuclear capability of the USA, the Malmstrom Air Force Base incident. But before we dive into the story, here's a quick reminder to check out the Paranormal Factor podcast Facebook page. Every day, Monday through Friday, there's new paranormal and supernatural material for you to explore. Fans of the show know it's the best place to find monsters, quizzes, film, TV, and book recommendations, and current paranormal news stories from around the world. And if you have the Alexa app, you can easily listen to our episodes by simply saying, Alexa, play the Paranormal Factor podcast, and you'll be carried away to our latest episode. Now, on to our episode. Sightings of UFOs adjacent to nuclear facilities go back decades, according to Robert Hastings, a UFO researcher and author of the book, UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. Hastings says he's interviewed more than 160 veterans who have witnessed strange things in the skies around nuclear sites. You have objects being tracked on radar performing at speeds that no object on Earth can perform, he said. You have eyewitness military personnel. You have jet pilots. In late 1948, green fireballs were reported in the skies near atomic laboratories in Los Alamos and Sandia, New Mexico, where the atomic bomb was first developed and tested. A 1950 FBI document reported flying saucers measuring almost 50 feet in diameter were seen near the Los Alamos labs. More than a dozen workers from the Atomic Test Site in Nevada, where several A-bombs were detonated after World War II, saw UFOs. Workers related to investigators that UFO activity was so commonplace there, employees were assigned to monitor the activity. And in the 1960s and 70s, repeated UFO sightings emerged at missile bases in the northern U.S. Witnesses to these incidents are often highly trained personnel with top secret clearances. In other words, extremely trustworthy and responsible individuals. And in recent years? Their reports are now being confirmed by sophisticated technology and even video evidence. However, one incident in particular at Maelstrom Air Force Base in Montana, a storage site for Nuclear Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles or ICBMs was much more than just a sighting. In 1967, according to former Air Force Captain Robert Salas, several of those missiles became inoperative at the same time base security reported seeing a glowing red object, about 30 feet in diameter, hovering over the facility. Salas, who commanded ICBMs as a launch officer and later worked in the aerospace industry and at the Federal Aviation Administration, would tell CNN the missiles began going into a non-launchable condition. So, what happened? What did Air Force personnel witness? Well, let's find out. Well, it's one thing to witness UFOs, but what happens when said UFOs actually affect military operations? In this case, nuclear operations. Former United States Air Force captain and nuclear missile crew commander Robert Salas served at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana back in the 1960s. In 1967, he claims his launch control facility, with control of 10 nuclear missiles, came under attack by a UFO. Speaking on the National Geographic UK series, UFOs Investigating the Unknown solace recalled eight orange colored lights and an oval shaped craft appearing over the facility that was witnessed by security personnel they did think there was a solid object within the light the retired air force captain said sort of oval shape uh, i kind of dismissed it i even said you mean like ufos and kind of laughed and he said well they're not airplanes sir About five minutes later he calls back and he's screaming into the telephone now and he's really frightened. He's babbling, he said he's got all the guards out there with their weapons drawn. They wanted orders on what to do and I told them make sure nothing enters the fenced area. When I hung up the phone I thought we were under attack by who or what. Well I didn't have any idea. And then we get bells and whistles going off. We could see the lights going from green to red all across the board meaning the missiles were inoperable. If the President had given the order to launch the missiles, we could not have launched them. The following is a sworn affidavit by Salas that he submitted in July, 2010. My name is Robert L. Salas. In March 1967, I was a first lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force Station at Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana. I was a missile combat crew member assigned to the 490th Missile Squadron. That's Minuteman missiles. My principal duty was to Monitor the readiness and security of the ten nuclear missiles under my control and to launch missiles if ordered by higher authority. The events described likely occurred on or about March 24, 1967. On the night in question, I was on alert duty at Oscar Flight Launch Control Center. I was on duty as the Deputy Missile Combat Crew Commander. The Missile Combat Crew Commander was 1st Lieutenant Frederick Mewald when the incident began lieutenant meewald was taking a scheduled rest period some time during the evening i received a call from my flight security controller the ranking non-commissioned officer or sergeant of the security team topside he reported to me that he and other members of the flight security team had been observing some lights in the sky making unusual maneuvers he stated that he did not think they were aircraft since they were traveling at a very high velocity and making unusual directional changes, and he also said there was no engine noise. He said he thought that this was so unusual that he thought he should report it to us. I thanked him for his report, but I did not consider it significant at that time, and I terminated the conversation. Within minutes, I received a second call from him. His voice was highly agitated, and he was screaming as he told me he was looking out the large window facing the front gate of the facility. He said there was a large, glowing, pulsating, red oval-shaped object hovering above the front gate. He told me it was about 30 to 40 feet in diameter, and he also said that he had his men outside with their weapons drawn observing the object. I asked him if there was a structure to the object, and he said he was having difficulty seeing any structure because of the glow of the light. He then asked if I had any direction for him. I simply told him not to allow anything inside the perimeter fence. He then abruptly cut off the conversation and said he had to go because one of his men was injured. I immediately turned to wake my commander, Lieutenant Miewoldt, and began telling him about the phone calls from the sergeant. As we were talking, alarms and indicators at the commander's console which showed the status of the missiles under our command began to go off. At this point we went through our checklist procedures. The indicators for all or nearly all ten missiles showed as red-colored fault lights, which meant that the missiles were disabled and could not be launched. Some of the missile indicators also had security violation lights illuminated, meaning a possible security incursion at those sites. When Lt. Mewald queried the fault system, the message given on most, if not all, the missiles was guidance and control system failure. During these checklist procedures, Lt. Mewald phoned the wing and squadron command posts. After these phone calls, Lt. Mewen said to me, the same thing happened at another flight, or words to that effect. Since we had received security violation lights at one or more of the launch facilities, I phoned the NCO up above and directed a security team response to those sites. During this conversation, the NCO reported that the object had flown off. Upon approaching and inspection of one of the launch facilities where the security team had been dispatched, the team reported seeing a similar object. The missiles under our command remained disabled for the rest of our tour of duty. We were relieved by another crew the next morning, and we were transported back to the base for a debriefing by our squadron commander, Colonel George Eldridge. Before departing Oscar flight, I spoke with the NCO on duty about the object he saw, and he could add nothing more to what he described to me earlier. He did say that one of the men had received a minor injury to his hand, but this injury did not result from any action by the object. Upon return to Malmstrom Air Force Base, we met with the 490th Squadron Commander Colonel George Eldridge and another officer who was assigned to the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, or AFOSI. Colonel Eldridge assured us that the incident was not part of any Air Force exercise, and he could not explain why it happened. The officer from AFOSI told us the incident was classified secret, and we were not to speak about it to any other person. At no time during the remainder of my tenure in the United States Air Force was I further contacted or questioned by any investigative body regarding the events. There were no further debriefs or explanations of any kind given to me as to why the missiles failed. Salas asserts that despite all that happened, The Air Force claimed after investigating the incident, the UFO sighting never posed a threat. Well, that was certainly a lie, Salas says. He said he and others at the scene were forced to sign documents saying they would not speak publicly about the incident. But, in 2010, he and others decided to speak out after years of silence. Salas has written a couple of books about UFOs and still stands by his story on what happened that night, as do others that were there. You see, Solace is certainly not alone in the telling of this story. Other sworn affidavits were also made in 2010. The following are two such sworn statements. Affidavit of Robert C. Jameson My name is Robert C. Jameson. In 1967, I was a U.S. Air Force First Lieutenant and worked as a Minuteman ICBM Targeting Officer or Combat Targeting Team Commander. Assigned to the 341st Missile Maintenance Squadron at Malmstrom Air Force Base, Great Falls, Montana, one of my jobs was to go out and restart missiles that had shut down for various reasons. On the night in question, the squadron's job control office called me at home sometime between 10 and midnight, perhaps even later than that. Our team was told to report to the MIMS operations hangar on base because a lot of missile sites were off-alert status, that is, shut down. Upon arriving at the hangar, but even before reporting to the job control office, I overheard other targeting team personnel discussing rumors of a UFO connection with the problem at hand. Supposedly, all 10 missiles comprising Oscar flight had gone off-alert status just after a UFO had been reported in the vicinity of their launch control facility. Once I arrived at job control, a non-commissioned officer and NCO confirmed those reports telling me that air police guards at the stricken flight had in fact reported a UFO moments before the missiles malfunctioned. I expected to be ordered to the missile field immediately to help restart the missiles. I was surprised to learn that all of the targeting teams had been directed to remain at the hangar as a precaution until all UFO reports from the field had ceased. I estimate that our teams waited two to three hours before being given the go-ahead to proceed to Oscar flight. While waiting, I walked to a temporary command post which had been set up in the hangar. There, I overheard another squadron member talking on a two-way radio about a second UFO which had apparently landed in a deep ravine not far from the base. Later that night, our targeting teams traveled past the landing site and observed a small group of Air Force vehicles positioned just off the road at the top of the ravine. Based on a newspaper report later published in the Great Falls Tribune, I believe this incident was the well-publicized UFO landing near Belt, Montana on the evening of March 24, 1967. After much delay, our targeting teams were briefed prior to departing the hangar. Our commander told us there had been some UFO activity that had been messing things up. They briefed us on what to do. If we saw a UFO on the road, we were to report it. If we were at a missile site and saw a UFO, we were supposed to get into the silo and close the personnel hatch. The guard accompanying us would remain outside and report developments to the base via radio. Our team never saw a UFO. After the incident, for a period of approximately two weeks, the combat targeting teams received the same special UFO briefing prior to each dispatch, during which we were again instructed to report any UFO sightings to the missile command post and to undertake self-defense measures in the event that a UFO made a nearby appearance while we were performing missile repairs in the field. After the Oscar flight incident, everyone in the Missile Maintenance Squadron had been talking about UFOs. I I talked to several people, mostly security alert team guards, who personally witnessed these events. They obviously saw something and were visibly shaken. I remember one guard telling of seeing two small red lights off at a distance. They then began to close in toward the missile site. As he was telling me this, the guard broke down and began weeping. So, I don't know what happened after that and I did not bring it up to him again. About two weeks later, on the other side of the base, I think it was India flight, there was some more UFOs reported and four or five missiles went down. I went to one of the sites and the other teams went to the other ones. As before, I did not see any UFOs myself. I recall that this incident had occurred during daylight hours. Affidavit of Patrick Madonna My name is Patrick Madonna. After active duty with the U.S. Air Force, I joined the U.S. Naval Reserve, retiring in 2003 as the Navy Intelligence Command Master Chief, Southwest Region. In September 1966, I was an Air Force Airman First Class assigned to the 1381st geodetic survey squadron based at F.E. Warren Air Force Base, Wyoming. During that month, I was sent on temporary assignment to Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana, acting as chief of party field survey team. The other team members were Airman First Class Al Kramer and Airman Third Class Charlie Coates. Our job was to perform surveying tasks related to the locations of various Minuteman 3 missile silos, or launch facilities or LFs, so as to permit the targeting of those missiles. In essence, an ICBM's guidance system needs to know very precisely where the missile was launched in the United States so that its nuclear warhead can accurately hit its target anywhere in the world. During our time at Malmstrom, our team had been working on the last 50 missile sites under construction at Malmstrom Air Force Base and were jointly assigned to Site Activation Task Force and the Boeing Corporation, which was the prime construction contractor. Our work was primarily done at night. On the date in question, on or about March 24, 1967, we were completing an Astra Azimuth observation at one of the missile sites. At approximately one thirty in the morning, a UFO came in from due north and stopped directly over the launch facility. The object was at an approximate altitude of 300 feet. It was disc-shaped and its diameter appeared to be around 30 to 50 feet. It appeared to have dim lights outlining the disc and a white light emanating from the center. It stayed there approximately 20-30 seconds and from a dead stop sped off to the east at a tremendous speed and there was no noise or wind. After the UFO departed, we immediately grabbed our gear and sped off from the missile site to return to the town of Conrad where we were temporarily living. While en route, we made a high-speed left turn at an unmarked T intersection, whereupon the brand-new Chevrolet truck's both right-side tires blew out and the vehicle flipped upside down. Fortunately, no one was hurt, and we walked to a not-so-nearby farmhouse where the Montana Highway Patrol and a tow truck were called. When the Highway Patrolman arrived, He stated that his dispatch had received over 20 reports from local residents observing a UFO in the vicinity that night. Incident reports were filed with the task force, Boeing, and the state of Montana. Nothing was ever heard from the Air Force about the incident, and no retribution or reimbursement was ever requested relating to the destruction of the new truck. It was like the incident had never happened. In my incident report, I stated that I had worked on the latest missiles and aircraft operated by the U.S. Air Force at that time, but had never seen any Air Force aircraft that could perform like this craft. Earlier reports of UFOs were often career killers for military personnel, or they were at least told to forget what they saw. But there is now an increasing openness in the Pentagon and Congress, to taking such sightings seriously as potential threats to national security. In April 2019, the U.S. Navy announced it was updating its guidelines for how personnel should report unexplained aerial phenomena. The guidelines make it much easier to report sightings to superiors without facing ridicule, professional stigma, and backlash. Investigative journalist George Knapp, who has studied the UFO nuclear connection for more than 30 years, says that's more activity than he has seen in three decades. He and many others think it's overdue. At the facilities where we were first designing and building nuclear weapons, at the places where we were processing the fuel, at the facilities where we were testing the weapons, at the bases where we deployed those weapons on the ships, the nuclear submarines, all those places, all the people working there, have seen these things, Knapp said. Are they all crazy? Because, hey, if they are, they shouldn't have their hands on nuclear weapons. And there's the rub. Skeptics have a hard time denying these accounts, for while they can question exactly what the objects are, They cannot question that highly capable and credible people have seen them and reported them. Nor can they attribute the sightings to mere coincidence when they occur so often around nuclear facilities and weapons. As we reported in season two, episode 32, in late December, 1980, US Air Force personnel, including air traffic controllers and people on the ground, encountered something startling near Royal Air Force Bentwaters in England. The UFOs they encountered were witnessed for hours. And guess what? Bentwaters just happened to house a secret stash of nuclear weapons in 25 fortified underground bunkers. It suggests the location was specifically chosen. In recent years, sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena have emerged from America's nuclear navy. F-18 fighter pilots from the nuclear-powered USS Theodore Roosevelt Carrier Strike Group saw UFOs almost daily for several months between the summer of 2014 and the spring of 2015. The strange objects followed them while executing training maneuvers along the eastern seaboard between Virginia and Florida. Wherever we were, they were there says Ryan Graves, an active-duty F-18 fighter pilot from the USS Roosevelt, who holds a degree in aerospace engineering. Observers can only speculate about the origin of these mysterious aerial phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Maybe. New weapons technology being deployed by the military? Yeah, that's possible too. But the repeated proximity to sensitive nuclear military sites connected to our nation's most powerful weapons, has raised the question of whether they might originate from adversaries, known or unknown. Former Air Force ICBM missile launch officer Salas believes these are alien craft and the other worldly visitors were trying to tell us something. We'll give him the final word. I think it was simply a show. They wanted to shine a light on our nuclear weapons and just send us a message. My interpretation is the message is get rid of them because it's going to mean our destruction. Well, in our next episode, we move into the realm of the supernatural when we share with you strange exorcism stories. Exorcism involves the practice of casting out one or more demons from a person that is believed to be possessed. And although such cases go back to biblical times, there are documented modern occurrences as well. And these are truly scary stories of real events. So join us as we look into actual stories of exorcisms, next time, right here on the Paranormal Factor podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. Quiz time indeed. And here's your question. On what island are the ghostly Drosolitos found? Is it A. Catalina Island in California B. Crete, Greece C. Tasmania Or D. Sicily, Italy Once again, what island are the ghostly drosolites found? Is it Catalina Island, Crete, Tasmania, or Sicily? And the answer is... Crete, Greece. The Drosolitis refers to a long procession of ghosts seen by residents around Franco Castello Castle in the Savakia region of the island of Crete in Greece. The eerie spectacle is rumored to be visible every year on the anniversary of the Battle of Franco Castello near a small village in southern Crete. The spectral procession is observed when the sea is calm and the atmosphere is moist, and before the sun rises too high in the sky. The appearance of these apparitions is well documented over the ages. On a hot and humid summer morning in Crete, a group of hikers had already started walking by the sea towards the castle of Franco Costello, near the town of Svakia. Everything was quiet, and all they could hear was the song of the cicadas and the relaxing sound of waves. As soon as they reached the Venetian fort, they spent some time staring at the ripples forming on the sea's surface. But it didn't take long until they all instinctively turned their heads toward the nearby monastery of Agios Carolambos. And what they saw? It left them frozen in fear. Tall, shadowy figures holding medieval weapons started sprinting toward them. Some of these warriors even looked as if they rode phantom horses. Well, the hikers couldn't speak or move. They stood there, mesmerized by the group of phantom warriors running toward them. And, strangely, the closer the shadows appeared to be, the smaller they became. And, just like that, a few yards away from them, they disappeared. Later that day, they learned from the locals they were lucky enough to experience seeing the Droselitas, the phantom warriors of Crete. And if you'd like to learn more about these ghostly apparitions then check out Season 3, Episode 11, right here on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, If you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.